0: now the Roman Catholic Church has a different view of what belongs in the Bible they include books which are referred to as the apocryphal writings certain ones from that collection and um, they believe that the church has the authority to declare something to be part of scripture and that therefore it is and Protestants have believed that we don't Make anything to be scripture. We don't declare it to be scripture and therefore make it to be scripture. We can only recognize what God has already inspired um, in the process of um, causing the books of the, leading the book re- writers of the biblical books to write what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other evidences for that. John started to get into some of that. Uh, the, um, Jewish people had an authoritative collection of books, did not include these apocryphal writings. Mm -hmm. Peter added additional support for that, showing that this collection in the edited volume that he has called Septuagint wasn't recognized as a completed body of work having equal authority to the Old Testament scriptures by the Jewish people at the time of the New Testament. It wasn't included in the temple text or the central tradition of Scripture. So Jesus and the New Testament authors agreed with that view of the Jewish people. They quote the Masoretic text, or not, not the Masoretic text, the text of our canonical Old Testament about 295 times. Never once do they quote the apocryphal writings as the words of the Lord or words of Scripture. They may allude to them sometimes, but never quote them as God's words. Um, and um, so the Jewish people of the time of Christ, Jesus the New Testament authors, do not include those extra books that the Roman Catholic Church includes.
1: And where do some of these extra books, these apocryphal books, come from? How did we get them?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, where do the apocryphal books come from? Well, they, they, you know, they surface um, during probably the, the, the middle to, to late part of the Second Temple period. So, um, You know, you could date a book like ben or Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, uh, to about 180 BC. Um, so they're, they're written by Jews, for Jews, uh, and if you take the prologue to Sirach, uh, seriously, they're written as works of wisdom and for instruction in the law. I think they see these books, uh, as interpretive and edifying works that will help elucidate or illuminate the meaning, uh, or the text of the law and the prophets and the other books. So as, you know, Peter and I have never talked about these things, but he pointed out that, uh, he thinks the grandson, uh, is not including the grandfather's works, Ben Sirah, in, in, in the other books. Uh, Ben Sirah at this time is simply not part of the canon, uh, mm-hmm. even by 130 BC. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing to add though, too, on, on to the, the canonical books, uh, as I was doing some research for this whole week, um, I was really surprised to find that in the Christian lists of the, of the canon, so starting as early, as early as Melito of Sardis in 150 AD and Origen slightly later, none of these lists include the very popular apocryphal books. Mm-hmm. You, you, you may get uh, Origen is the first to list the Epistle of Jeremiah, but he includes the longer ending of Jeremiah because I think at that time they may have thought that it was part of the book of Jeremiah itself. It didn't really have an independent status. If you look at the list, it's Jeremiah with the epistle, not sort of Jeremiah and the epistle or the epistle of Jeremiah listed separately. Uh, I was very surprised to find uh, Christians all the way up to Nicephorus I uh, of Constantinople uh, not including the apocryphal books in their canon lists. Uh, which, at least, that, that that accounts for the Eastern tradition. I think some things happened in the West uh, that may have caused the Roman Catholic Church to go a slightly different
0: way. Well, and the increasing prevalence of Latin and the increasing use of Latin translations, which included the apocryphal books, mm-hmm. then gave a tendency for people to read it and think of it as part of Scripture.
1: Yeah.
0: Hmm. Very good. As time went on.
1: And the second question uh, that we wanted to answer from the card is, can I preach with confidence from my English
0: Bible? If it's the ESV. (laughs) I
3: need this SFF. I love it. Peter? Yes, absolutely. I think in preparation, of course, it's always good to use multiple uh, translations, and if you find that they are all going in different directions, that might make you less confident of a particular interpretation. So I always think that people should focus most on what you're most sure about. So you know, we all have passages we're not sure what they mean. Everyone, you know, uh, doesn't matter how much time they spent in scholarship, and therefore, to me, to make those things I'm uncertain about, the focus of my sermon or sermon series isn't very wise, is it? So I think let's let's focus on the things uh, that, that that are are clearest. So heretics tend to start with the unclear text and then move towards the clear text and the, uh, the sound people will start with the clear text and then move towards the less clear
1: hmm. Very Good. Yeah. well moving to the questions that we got from you the first one that I have is from Mock Mock you want a signed copy of Grudem Systematic Theology if you're out there I'm assuming your name is Mock that is a great name you deserve a prize for your name so uh, you get it um, see me after this and we'll make sure you get that uh, but this is this question, and this was asked before your talk, um, so I don't even know how to ask this question anymore, but I'm going to take a shot at it. Um, is what we find in Septuagint's texts inspired, and how do we understand those texts that we find in the New Testament that seem to come from what we think is the Septuagint or one of them yep. the 70? You can clean that question up.
3: Yeah. Um, so uh, just on the word inspired, I think probably a better phrase for us to use consistently is uh, words given by God. You know, um, because sometimes the word, you know, music can be inspired. And I, I don't think it's necessary. Although it's historically a term that people have used the last couple of centuries, you know, it may not be the clearest for communicating today. So in terms of, is it something, what, what are words given by God? And I think God gave words in Hebrew and a bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament and in Greek uh, in the New Testament. Obviously, anything that's uh, in the New Testament quoted from the old uh, is given by God by very virtue of the fact that it's in the New Testament. I think we need to be careful just about um, the word quote uh, because uh, our conventions of quotation are different from what they were even several hundred years ago. Uh, We invented these terrible things called speech marks um, and now that we use them, uh, what those speech marks mean is once you start sticking them round words, you're not allowed to put in any extra words without telling people or uh, drop out any words without putting uh, dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, uh, pe- people in the past weren't uh, fixed to that. So um, in the New Testament, the New Testament writers don't always say um, exactly what they're quoting. And so we need to be careful that we don't assume, because they say, as it is written in the prophets, um, and, oh, it looks rather like Amos 9, therefore, this can be taken as an assertion that they say that the best text you should read if you're reading out Amos 9 is this. They may actually be saying, you know as the whole of scripture teaches, and then, then they're bringing together a number of yeah. different quotations. Yeah. So th- that's just a reservation. And you do find some phenomenal reverses like um, Matthew 2 verse 6, where you, you have um, quoting, and I'm using the word quotation loosely, um, uh, Micah 5, which says that um, Bethlehem is the least amongst the clans of Judah, and it becomes uh, you are by no means the least amongst the rulers of Judah. Uh, and, and that's you know going the opposite way. But it's going the opposite way after thinking carefully. Uh, and what these scriptures are, should be making us do is search the scriptures more carefully to see what exactly is going on. So you wouldn't say that Matthew misquoted the Old Testament there? So I think to say that someone misquoted is wrong. Right. Uh, what you should be saying is that they are... Um, uh, bringing Old Testament text before us and we need to look and see what exactly they're doing. Um, often when we are preaching, um, we will allude to a text um, uh, and we won't quote exactly the words that we might well have memorized uh, because that doesn't fit into the syntactic context of the thing we're saying. It doesn't bring out the point we're trying to make most and we need to recognize those same things going on with New Testament writers. Mm. Yeah. I think I've found also Peter, just in line with what you're saying, that
0: sometimes these quotations from the Old Testament or using of words from the verses in the Old Testament that seemed to us puzzling at first, upon deeper reflection, as you say, are consistent with the broader sense of Scripture or the deeper sense of what was in the text and the context itself. Uh, Just as now I have been reading Scripture for something like 60 years, I see things in verses that I didn't see before. I think they're there, but I didn't previously understand them in light of where they fit in the light of the whole of Scripture. And so when I say to a first-year seminary student, well, this verse demonstrates this, the seminary student said, well, how did you get that from that? Well, it might take me five or ten minutes to unpack where it came from and how I see it in that context and where it fits in the larger scope of the history of redemption, but it's there. It just wasn't quite evident at first. Very good. Thank you.
1: And John, you, you did a great job of unfolding this temple text uh, paradigm for us. Uh, could you tell us uh, just a little bit? Somebody asked um, where this came from, how long it's been held to, and what kind of um, what kind of arguments are being leveled against it from those who might disagree with it?
2: Yeah, that's good. Um, let's see. I think I first started thinking about it about this view um, about a year or two ago uh from reading the works of two non-evangelicals uh a man named Emmanuel Tove uh and another scholar named Ari Vanderkoy uh wrote very very impressive articles both dealing with those ancient uh the ancient testimony of of texts being laid into temples uh and then uh Tove uh for the most part does a great job showing what that text might have looked like so when we were looking at inner circle and second circle texts uh, Tove would say that these are uh, copies of the master scrolls from the temple. So it actually comes out of non-evangelical uh, circles, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, paying attention to facts. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there's there's a there's a, a careful attention to the evidence uh, here. Um, I'm trying. There was a lot in that question, though. There was, so uh, and then what what has been leveled against it? Yeah, and I mentioned it just briefly, texts like Proverbs 25 verse 1, where you've got a collection of Proverbs there which come from King Hezekiah and his men, um, these texts also reveal that uh, there was a lot of scribal activity happening in the royal courts as well. So it's not an exclusive temple, Uh, the scribal activity is not exclusively tied to the temple, um at least in an earlier period there might have been some happening in the royal courts as well but i would say in in terms of israel's history ezra as a levitical priest uh interestingly enough he is also a scribe mm-hmm. and so uh, certainly as you get into the second temple period a whole lot more seems to be happening in the temple than in the royal courts uh-huh.
1: And what role does the, uh, first destruction of the temple by Babylon, what is that, how does that play into this view?
2: Yeah, um I, I just have some thoughts here. I, I, I don't, uh, that's a great question. Um, Babylon would come in, right? I'm assuming we're referring to Nebuchadnezzar around what, 606, 605, uh, coming into destroying, uh, destroying Jerusalem and the temple. But what we also learn from this is that he, um, he captures the elite. Right? Daniel and his, and his friends, uh, and he brings them back to Babylon. What I'm wondering is, is he probably is not out to destroy all of Israel's culture, the Jews' culture, uh, they probably were allowed to bring their text back with them. Another little hint along these lines is when, uh, Jeremiah, uh, goes into exile into Egypt, uh, he is still writing, and he's writing down his oracles in letters and he is sending them to Babylon, you hmm. see. And so, so I think text transmission uh, continues uh, through this entire period. Hmm. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I think we can be pretty confident that there's still a line there uh, hmm. of the text uh, both before and after uh, the destruction of the first temple. Similar to how Judas Maccabeus puts it in that text that I read, Uh, or, or the, the author of 2nd Maccabees puts it, Nehemiah comes back to the land and he gathers texts into a library. What texts would those be? The ones they brought into Babylon with them, right? Right. And then Judas, now, after the Seleucids comes in, the Seleucid uh, kings come in, destroy, uh, Jerusalem, the temple, he has to regather the books as well and the records and, and all that. So. Very
1: good. Anything you would add, Peter?
3: yeah and just to say that uh, I, th- I think people in every period um try and keep literature so when the romans were going to destroy jerusalem in ad 70 the jews of course have put the dead sea scrolls um into safe storage yeah. um and uh likewise we would expect with um, you know the babylonians besieging that one of the key priorities is going to be making sure that you keep your um uh, archives um uh, safe and, uh, a whole, I don't think that the Babylonians would be interested in simply destroying all the literature. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least certainly a little bit earlier, um, Ashurbanipal is trying to collect every bit of literature mm-hmm. in the world into his library. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you have a chance to, um, you know, swallow up, uh, an archive, uh, that would be good. So uh, certainly th- they wouldn't be looking just to, you know, burn, um, the literature. What you want to do is burn, um, they're, they're symbols of, of power um, physically, the architecture and, and uh, anything that could be, you know, uh, destroy walls and um, those are the sorts of things. So um, I don't think there'll be any problem there. And, and you do also see when people are taken into captivity, they can sometimes be carrying things. So yep. in the British Museum, we have um, uh, pictures of Assyrians uh, forcing prisoners to... Uh, walk ahead, but they're carrying musical instruments because they're forcing them to perform music. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that um, all of the elite get taken off and so on, um, of course, uh, in 597, the elite are preserved. In 586, the uh, elite are effectively killed i mean that's 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 the uh, condemnation for uh, uh, that rebellion and uh, you know and, and only the poor people left but that also you have an administration Gedaliah which is which is left there by the babylonians um to have an administration you need to have all your administrative records right. um so you know there th- there are multiple means of, of continuity um you know after the destruction of the first temple
1: right, right. right. um Dr. Gruden, Bart Ehrman's recently come out with Misquoting Jesus, and uh, I was shocked, I think, with a number of evangelicals that it received, um, you know, best-seller status, uh, because a lot of the, the facts in it are actually the kind of facts that you would learn in any kind of introduction to yep. uh, Greek or Hebrew uh, class. Yep. And so he states things like, you know, um, we have uh, basically more variance in the Greek New Text that we have than they're actually words in the Greek New Testament. Um, When we think about inerrancy, um, how do we encourage our people, that, or or should we, that they should be encouraged to believe in inerrancy, um, but also how to explain and understand those kinds of variants and how they can be a challenge to
0: your faith? Peter had a PowerPoint slide that had Savior spelled S-A-U-I-O-R, Instead of S A V I O R I O U R, we know it's the word "savior," even though it had a very an earlier spelling that was different. And thousands of these variants that Bart Ehrman doesn't go into detail about are just little spelling variations in the way words are written, um, or very obvious slip of the pen on failing to put an ending on a word or something like that. Dan Wallace has answered that extensively. Um, any variant. It makes any difference in the meaning of the text, that's significant, even to the slightest extent. I open randomly here. Some manuscripts seek, seek about other... Some manuscripts say, other manuscripts say, they're all in the footnotes of the English text. There's no, he, no secret about them. And I can routinely ask a student to open randomly to any pace, page in the New Testament, read the variant and say, does it make any difference? And whether it says Jesus or the Lord Jesus... Or the Lord Jesus Christ, we know it's referring to the same person. So the variants are of that type uh, for the most part and don't challenge the trustworthiness of the text as a whole. I'm, I'm coming away from this morning's two presentations, um, strongly encouraged by Peter's presentation about the priority of the Hebrew canon and reliability trustworthiness of the Hebrew canon we have as opposed to Septuagint translating or challenging it, and from John's presentation as opening up a whole new conceptual world to me of the centrality of a temple text. Well, of course, because because the idea of a canon among the Jewish people started at Mount Sinai, where God gave written words on tablets of stone that were to be stored in the tabernacle. There you have a document from... The, so this, these scholars, and I, I read them... Again and again, from a non-evangelical perspective, they said there wasn't an idea of canon until the second century AD or something like that, like the fellow you quoted this morning. There was an idea of canon from Exodus 20. Mm-hmm. When God gave the written words of the text that were, he wrote with his own finger and gave to Moses, God is saying, these are my words. I wrote them. Pay attention. And then he gives Moses the authority to add to those words and Joshua later to add and others to add. But there, The tablets of stone are stored in the Ark of the Covenant. Other, other words are added to the Book of the Law and laid up beside the Ark. in as this idea of a temple text, that's been from the beginning of the Jewish people. And I, I think as I was listening to John's presentation, I was thinking, thank you, God, for your great wisdom in not only giving your words to your people, but telling them how to protect them and preserve them. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful yeah very good um
1: peter uh, inerrancy is it, is it a helpful term um uh are there any tweaks that you would make to say how the chicago statement on biblical inerrancy uh, defined inerrancy
3: no i'm very happy with the term inerrancy i mean i, th- I think it, it just follows uh, logically if you, if you um believe in a truthful god and god gave words then those words need to be true um without error obviously any word is going to need to be defined it doesn't mean that we don't believe that satan was in error or characters in the bible were in error or you know and it doesn't mean that copyists don't make errors what we're talking about is when god gave gave the words he didn't make any errors um and uh, you know it's going to need some um, further elaboration but um any term you use is going to do that. I mean, so when some people say it's an unclear term, we ought to use the word authority. And I think, well, that's going to need some definition, isn't it? You know, right. so I, I, I think just just uh, stay your ground with, with a term like that. I often use the word true um, because it's a positive term rather than a negative term uh, as uh, the, the word that I first pitch with because I find it's a lot harder for Christians to disagree whether they're going to say what well, what god said something that wasn't true do you believe mm-hmm. and they they, they they ought to feel rather embarrassed about that um so uh you know that that's my way rhetorically of of, of trying to get people on the side i I, th- I think sometimes people might um be be scared off because they think you're saying you know um something that uh that, that you're not but but i i very happy with the narrative so yeah But I think with all of these things, it's good to mix and match the terminology, you know, not always stick with the same phrasing. Because if we're thinking about the words we're using, um, then we, we don't have to get, you know, stuck with, with one set of phrase. We're trying to convey to people that our God has given us His words in written form and that we can totally trust them. And we're trying to convey that to people. And I think sometimes, you don't just repeat an explanation. You, you go off and use a different analogy and a different set of words. So, you know, I think uh, that that can be helpful. And, and perhaps what's happened with a phrase like inerrancy is it's um, it's the bit you sign to get your p- paycheck if you're at one of those places where you have to do that to sign. You know, and we need to really ensure that people do believe that God has given true word, you know, uh, his His word, and it's entirely true. Uh, and, and so uh, not just contenting ourselves with using that one word uh, to express that, I think, can be helpful. Yeah. Very good. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. Um,